You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. People Magazine has said that Jennifer Ackerman is blessed with a naturalist's eye for detail and a poet's soul. Her latest book beautifully describes how the body is a system of finely tuned clocks. She weaves cutting-edge science with poetic descriptions of the impact that circadian biology has on nearly every aspect of our lives. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is science writer Jennifer Ackerman. She has written for National Geographic, The New York Times, among many others. Her new book is called Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream. Welcome to ReachMD. Thanks so much for having me here. Jennifer, thanks so much for talking with us today. I learned so much from reading your book, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. For those who have yet to read it, just a quick summary. It's a wonderful review of what happens throughout our bodies every day. And Jennifer divides the book into time periods, morning, midday, afternoon, and evening. So I thought it makes sense to begin in the logical place and talk about morning. And Jennifer, you start off the book right away talking about waking up to an alarm clock. So tell us about that. Tell us about the sound versus smell, all the different triggers we have to wakefulness. Well, it actually turns out that there's a very good reason we don't have smell alarm clocks. Research shows that once people have been asleep for a little while, they don't respond to even powerful odors like peppermint or offensive odors, skunk smells, that sort of thing. So the nose is really not a good sentinel system, but the ear is, and the brain is very good at processing sound while it sleeps, which is why we have alarm clocks that buzz and ring and play music. So wake up and smell the coffee. You have to wake up before you can smell the coffee, huh? That's right. Now, I personally never use an alarm clock, and I always manage to wake up on time, even if I have to get up earlier than usual. How does that work? Can we really tell time in our sleep? Yes, we can, and I'm like you. I can anticipate my alarm by a few minutes, and um, at least for some of us, we really do have a brain that keeps track of time in our sleep. And it boosts blood concentrations of stress hormones that get us up and moving in the morning. And that's why we sometimes wake up a, a few minutes before the alarm goes off, even when it's set for a, you know, a miserably early hour like you described for a flight or if you have to study for an exam. And I think it's just an amazing feat and probably exceeds our ability to tell time during our waking hours. But it doesn't work for everybody. Do we know how how that happens? Well, there's a mind-based alarm clock in the brain. And it works especially well for people who are larks, who are morning people. Owlish people who have a tendency to, to wake up later in the morning have a much more difficult time with this. And it is related to the production of these stress hormones that get us up and going. And this adrenocorticotropin is one of those. And the brain somehow knows to signal the body to produce this stress hormone in advance of waking time. Now, what is sleep inertia? You talk a bit about that in your book as well. Yes, this is the grogginess and disorientation that you experience when you first wake up, and um, most of us suffer from it. Even if you have a built-in alarm clock, your your brain's performance in that first half hour or so after waking is, is far from stellar, and uh, it's really because of sleep inertia. And in fact, your mental agility in that first half hour of waking is worse than if you've been up for 24 hours. And the severity of it, of sleep inertia, also depends on the stage of sleep from which you awake. And if you awake from REM sleep, which is a lighter dream phase of sleep, you're generally more alert, more chatty. But if you're awoken from deep sleep, 
which is generally true if you awake to the sound of a, of a jarring alarm clock, then you're going to be much groggier for a longer period of time. So that's a bit worrisome for those of us that are on call and frequently are awakened in the middle of the night and having to make fairly significant clinical decisions. So if if we're awakened, we could have the nurses just call us when we're in REM sleep. That would be a better strategy, huh? Right, and there are actually some kind of gizmos that you can buy that will actually wake you out of REM sleep so that you're that much more alert when you first get up. Now, um, back to the lark versus the owl question. Does that change? If you're a lark, do you have more or less sleep inertia than an owl? Yes. Well, I think it, it depends on when you're you're woken in many cases. I think the difficult aspect for owls in our society is that they go to bed very late and yet our, their work schedules dictate that they rise early. And this means that basically they're not getting enough sleep. So yes, their sleep inertia is I think, aggravated by, by sleep loss. Now, this sounds like my teenagers. Yeah, that's a very interesting phenomenon. And I have uh, two teenagers as well. And we are basically a family of larks. My parents are larks, I'm a lark, and my daughters are larks, except that they're, as they go through adolescence, their clocks are shifting. And this has actually been documented by a scientist at Brown University the teenagers really do experience a shift in their biological clocks so that they, they become more owlish during those adolescent years. Is there hope that they'll grow out of it? <laughs> they will. Their clocks will swing back to a more larkish pattern. Again, the hard thing is the way our society is structured. Uh, teenagers, high schoolers in particular, are often asked to wake very early in the morning for a 7 or 7.30 startup of school time and their brains are at home asleep on their pillows. Yeah, actually, my son, when he was a senior in high school, had to be at school at 6.30 in the morning. It's a little bit of insanity, and there's some school systems. Here in Charlottesville, Virginia, we have um, a fairly sane system where the uh, elementary school children start school first, and our high schoolers don't start until 9 o'clock. makes a, a good deal of sense, but, but not everybody in the country uh, works that way. makes complete sense. Now, whether you're an, a lark or an owl, is this another function of genetics? Yes, it is. People's rhythms vary, and there's definitely a genetic component at play here. First of all, there's a spectrum from extreme larks who like to get up very early before dawn to owls who have trouble rising really until very late in the morning or even in the early afternoon. And the differences are shaped by small variations in the genes that run our clocks. And as I mentioned, the tendency is also shaped by age, and exposure to natural light can have an effect as well. If you're just joining the discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Jennifer Ackerman, recipient of literature fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Bunting Institute of Radcliffe College. We're discussing her latest book on circadian systems. Jennifer, you mentioned in the book that you have a lasting affection for caffeine. And I'm always amazed how many physicians have no idea how the most popular drug in the world, uh, caffeine, works in our bodies. Can you tell us how caffeine really works? Yes. Well, first of all, I am a caffeine fanatic, and so is my mother. So I don't know whether there's a genetic component there or not, but there may be. But I only drink about three strong cups a day, and she she went up to about seven or eight. So I was very interested to learn that the drug works not by exciting our nerve cells in the brain, but by foiling the process by which they're calmed. 
So what caffeine does is that it hooks up with the body's receptors for a chemical called adenosine. And that's a natural body chemical that quiets cell activity. So adenosine calms your heartbeat and lowers your blood pressure and makes you sleepy. And the way caffeine enhances alertness is by inactivating those receptors for adenosine and thereby oiling its calming effects. By the way, I just have to mention here that there's some good news about those of us that, for those of us that love caffeine, and especially for women. There was a, a study by the French that showed that caffeine in, in three cups of coffee or tea a day may actually help older women retain their mental sharpness. So I'm just thrilled with this news. <laughs> Yikes, I better start drinking caffeine. Now, taste, you say, is mostly smell. How does that work? Right. It's it's not just that delicious coffee taste that's mostly smell. It's really any flavor is 75% smell. So when you sip your coffee, what your tongue is telling you really is only that it's bitter. That really lovely coffee taste is actually a pleasant coffee odor, which is detected by a special sensory system newly discovered that uh, detects odors through the mouth. Now, does temperature affect taste? It does indeed. Warming actually enhances our perception, particularly of sweetness and bitterness. That's another reason that that uh, cup of coffee tastes so good. And in fact, by just heating or cooling your actual tongue, you can trigger a taste sensation in about uh, 50% of people. Just by changing the temperature. That's right. Now, does what we see affect our taste? Yes. Um, that, that fascinated me. I guess it's one reason that restaurants create, you know, their aesthetically pleasing arrangements of food. But a fr- another French scientist, of course, recently conducted a, a very neat experiment on this phenomenon. What he did was he gave a panel of 54 expert and amateur tasters a white wine that was artificially colored red. And the whole panel, both experts and amateurs, described the odor and taste of this wine as that of a red wine. Now, again, we're, we're talking about things that you write about in your book that have to do with the morning. And uh, one of the other very interesting areas, I thought, was your work looking at uh, what is the best time to exercise. I think many of us just assume it's the morning to kind of get ourselves going. What what did you find there? Well, I should say first that the best time to exercise is really when you feel like it, when it's most convenient or pleasurable, and that way you'll stick with your exercise routine. But if you want to maximize your athletic performance, say you want to run your fastest race or you want to swim your speediest freestyle stroke, the best time to attempt your event is actually in the late afternoon or evening. And the reason is that that's when your body temperature is highest and your muscles are most powerful, and your joints flexible. And it's also when you breathe easiest and when your heart is pumping most efficiently. Another thing is that your actual perception of your own exertion is lowest then, so your workout actually doesn't feel so difficult. And they've they've done some very interesting studies on this. One new one showed that collegiate swimmers clocked their best time on a a 200-meter freestyle race at 11 at night. Well, maybe because they're young and they're owls, huh? (laughs) Could be. Now, what's the best time to eat if you don't want to gain weight? Well, you know, our mothers have been telling us for a long time that we should eat a big breakfast, and they're right. Very interesting research tells that um, the people who take in more of their calories at, at breakfast actually consume fewer calories overall during the day than those who have their big meals later in the day. And one of the reasons for that may be that brains 
satiety mechanisms actually function better earlier in the day, so we can eat less and feel more satiated than we do later in the day. This, this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, too. We're, we're basically creatures that, that are meant to function during the day. The flip side of this is if you want to gain weight, you should eat at night and you should eat in front of the TV because the, it turns out that the brain really can't monitor intake, so you're just nosh and nosh and nosh and ignoring those brain signals that are saying, stop, I'm full. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been discussing some of our body systems that are particularly active as we awaken each day with author Jennifer Ackerman. Her latest book is Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 